AT&T Threat Track is a roundtable discussion of security trends and news. Full video of this program can be found on YouTube by searching for AT&T Threat Track. So, Stan, I heard you got a, a story about a brand new version of Qbot. You want to tell us about it? Uh, yes. So Qbot is actually a story, uh, is a piece of malware that's been around for quite some time. I think more than a decade for sure. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was going through the news feed and I noticed Veronis published this article about a new variant of it. So first of all, uh, it uses, uh, like, like all other malware variants, it uses uh, like different stages to download its components, depending if it's connected onto the internet or not. It's very polymorphic. But the thing that I thought uh, was interesting about it, doesn't use like Internet Explorer or anything to download uh, stuff, mm -hmm. and it doesn't use like an API to do it. It uses this program called Bits Admin. So Bits Admin is part of uh, the Background Intelligent Transfer Service. It's part of Windows, and it's sort of used to pull down updates. Uh, but it could be used to pull down any file from the internet, you know, as long as you have a URL for it. Another thing uh, that this thing tries to do to make itself look a little bit more legitimate is it uses um, SSL certificates to sign the loaded modules. Uh, so one of the things that uh, they notice is that you know some of the certificates appear to be like stolen or imitated of like legitimate ones, and other ones are like self-signed. Uh, so that's interesting. And uh, finally, this one I thought was really interesting to me because I feel like I haven't seen this for a while. It's a worming capability. Oh. So usually, you know, as you think about uh, malware out there today, um, I'm kind of thinking about, you know, it's phishing attacks. Maybe I haven't heard drive-by downloads for a while, but yeah. maybe drive-by downloads. Uh, but then once you kind of infect one device, that's it, you know? Uh, but this one tries to spread on a network by doing like SMB scanning and brute forcing for different like uh, username and passwords basically for different shares on the network. Mm -hmm. So basically, if let's say you're working in a small business environment, you, one of your employees um, clicked on this thing, infected it, there's a chance potentially that that infection will now spread through the rest of your you know, small business network or whatever, your home network. Uh, that you might have. Usually we see these worms with ransomware or taking things down uh, for like denial of service attacks. Uh, but this time, the worming capability is really used to spread the Trojan and probably steal as much information as possible. Yeah, that worming, I haven't seen that since uh, WannaCry. For a little while, it was very popular to use the Eternal Blue, Eternal Romance family as a means of propagating stuff into a network. Right. Uh, ransomware, for example, would be one way, one thing you'd want to use that for. Yes. Uh, but yeah, I agree, I haven't seen it in, in quite some time. Yeah, especially for like tro banking Trojans like this. Mm -hmm. Right, now, and I, I, I read the article as well, and it, it popped up a couple questions, and actually, you, you had stated about small business, S&B for uh, your, your example, and it makes a lot of sense because I think with larger environments, any of that brute force attacking would probably be logged or there'd be some sort of security policies and procedures that would you know, be triggered with larger environments that may not be set up or configured within you know, an SMB sort of environment. So at first when I was reading it, I thought, you know, this Qbot version sounds really loud. On, on the network, but for various environments, it makes sense that it would be it can do that and sneak through. So, and, you know, and as what Matt said with the you know um, 
the SMB, the Eternal Blue WannaCry stuff. I mean, that was a couple of years ago, and then now we're seeing it again. So a couple of minor tweaks, all of them used by malware in the past. Uh, in this case, uh, used all together. So one of the things uh, that I guess is another interesting thing to point out is that the researchers at Veronis, they went to a few of these like C2 locations and they figured out that um, the permissions were not set up right on the C2 server, uh -huh. so they could do like directory, uh, basically view the entire the contents of the directory. And by studying it, they were able to do some counts on number of victims impacted and things like that. So they have some interesting charts um, up there on their blog uh, that kind of show the distribution of things. And uh, I have it on my screen here. It's it's quite interesting to see the pie chart of the win the operating systems impacted. So it's mostly um, between Windows 10 and Windows 7, mm -hmm. uh, and you could see that Windows 10 Enterprise is like probably a quarter of this pie chart, um, and then Windows 10 Pro Professional Home is kind of like the rest with a bunch of the minor versions uh, in between there. So really interesting, but you know, I, I, I was kind of, I remember seeing Windows XP and those older operating systems, and you kind of think as we evolve that maybe you won't see like a Windows 10 in, in these kinds of statistics, but um, you know, unfortunately, the bad guys are always there, um, trying to compromise devices. No matter you know how much better the security gets in the operating system, there's still a way to trick users to install Trojans and uh, maybe even spread laterally and use some of these obfuscation techniques, like SSL certificates, legitimate tools to stay hidden. And I think that's what these guys are doing. Um, it's unfortunate, but um, at least we're aware of it. Don't just have a system out there that is completely unprotected and doesn't have any kind of monitoring. Those, these are going to be the keys to discovering this and then um, you know, identifying it and taking care of it. Tony, you found an interesting story that it goes all over the place. It goes to GitHub you know, accounts and then apparently ends up in a, a botnet for sneaker selling. Can you dive into this a little bit, please? Absolutely. Now, this one, this one really was interesting to me because uh, the researchers they stumbled across a, um, a a ring of nefarious GitHub accounts, and within these GitHub accounts, they found over 300 different legitimate um, applications that were backdoored, altered, and they were posted out there. They also had built this web of other accounts that would either watch or star the main GitHub accounts to kind of increase the popularity of them. Uh, there, was, there was one account that they discovered that contained 305 ELF binaries. Uh, there was also, I think, about 78 other apps that were spanned across an additional 80 or so GitHub accounts as well. So they created this net. And with all of these other uh, non-nefarious non accounts kind of, you know, watching them, and they, they just expand the popularity of them. It, it, was, it was really interesting the way that they kind of did that within the GitHub environment. It's not a concept that's brand new. And I think we've heard of things like this before. The fascinating things to me is kind of like the abuse of trust that we have in GitHub. The back door was actually a... Um, it's called, was it, um, Supreme NYC BlazeBot, which is just an infection. Uh, and it, what it does is when it gets triggered, it does boot persistence. 
So you have these legitimate apps that were now backdoored. Uh, people are able to pull these things down, and once they're, they're in place, as you said, they created something called a sneaker bot. Uh, what this was used for was uh, online auctioning for uh, very expensive shoes. So out of all of this work that they did within GitHub, uh, going after uh, different Mac, Linux, and Windows applications, uh, they did it for online auctioning for expensive shoes. It was, it was such kind of an interesting twist with this. So, um, yeah, that's really what the, uh, the, the story had in place. But there was a ton of research by uh, the, the research company, uh, DFIR, that when you go there, you see all this breakdown. And it goes all over the place on the analysis. And it was really, really interesting. Stan, I don't know if you read it, but it was really like deep analysis. Like I think you would really get a, a kick out of reading it. It sounds like they, it, they yeah. I, I hadn't read it, but this sounds unbelievable. Yeah. The, the amount of effort to go through to create a GitHub, uh, you know, personas mm -hmm. that will be able to contribute to projects and starring them. That takes a lot of work just to create a botnet for sneaker. Well, apparently the, the profit is there in selling these these expensive sneakers. Like Supreme, the one that the brand it's named after is a well-known uh, clothing brand and their stuff it goes for ridiculous prices online. From what I understand, there are people out there, sneaker heads, who will go and, and pay any price for the rare sneakers that are out there. So, you know, if you're a criminal and you understand that market and you, you write code to, to manipulate it and take advantage of it, then yeah, I guess it's, it's another way to make money. I think it's interesting that this is being done on GitHub. I think, I've, you know, you, you, you find something cool on GitHub, you look at that user's, you know, other code that they've checked in, and like it's it's very easy to fork one repo to another one on GitHub, and it'll tell you, yeah, it's been forked from here. Um, so there are plenty of, of unauthorized copies of software that are moving, going around, like someone intended to share the source code, but you may find copies of it on someone who, you know, sometimes it's legit, sometimes all they've done is fork it for their own private development, they may make a change to a small feature or something. But in this case, it sounds like they're intentionally taking those repos and adding some backdoor stuff. And through, unless you bother to take a look at the commit history of this repo, you're not going to notice the difference. You may just assume, oh yeah, this guy's just, you know, he's got his own copy. It can't be a big deal. It is pretty scary. You know, sometimes it's not clear to know who is the original source of yep. the material. Sometimes, you know, uh, you, you take a, a forked branch and that might be the, the, the copy that's being worked on right now active, in active deployment, mm -hmm. uh, in active development. So um, this is unbelievable. I, I mean, I can't imagine others are not trying to do similar things, and it's, it's quite scary. Um, I think we all have to be very vigilant about what we get from GitHub mm -hmm. and make sure that we don't overly trust you know, software packages just because they're up on GitHub. Yeah. Just because it's on GitHub or it's an open source project, be very careful what you're downloading. If you download a library or a tool, try and find the, the primary source for that software instead of downloading it from somebody else's uh, GitHub repo because it, without careful inspection, it's hard to tell what changes have been made. And those changes may include malicious ones. So uh, Matt, you have a story about some vulnerabilities in kiosks. Can you tell us a little bit more? Sure, so this was some research done by the IBM X-Force Red team uh, actually by a couple of interns on that team, which makes the work even more impressive in my opinion. 
um, but they had decided to take a look at these kiosk systems that you might find in an office building. And they took a look at kiosks from five different companies and they found 19 different vulnerabilities in them. Oh, wow. Which is really something considering that some of these zones are like data leakage where if you go up to this thing and you know how to manipulate it, you can find, you can take a look at the database like in full, including stuff that probably shouldn't be in there and use visible to a user like driver's licenses. Mm. Uh, other things they might, they, that they did find, uh, some of these systems have default admin credentials, which you can use from just the, the usual user interface. So obviously you find what the admin credentials are and you can modify the system. You can say somebody visited. You can remove the, you know, the visit that somebody made. Um, kiosk breakouts. So you know, typically when you have a kiosk system like this, it's running Windows or some other system. These in particular were running Windows. Uh, but you would never want the user to break out of that shell of the kiosk and just use it like a regular Windows box. Well, yes, some of these, these uh, kiosks did have a, a kiosk breakout, which means you can get out and you can use the system with the same privileges that the kiosk software runs as. So if you've got a system like this that automates a portion of the physical security process, and it can be bypassed or it can be used as an attack vector to get deeper into your network, I think that's fascinating. It's, it's always interesting because you've got this, this system that, that ties directly into the physical access portion of security. It, it bleeds across the line, you know what I mean? So I, I always find this stuff kind of interesting. Uh, so some of the bugs have been patched. Not all of them have been patched at this point. Uh, so if you do have one of these systems, and I recommend you go read the article and find out if you do, uh, patch when you can. Otherwise, if you can harden the system, do that. Definitely, if you're using it in the out-of-the-box state with the default admin creds, it's time to change those admin creds to something that's you know, not the default and preferably something strong. Um, and really, the lesson, I think, from this is that this is a public-facing kiosk. It may be physically inside of your building, you know, protected by cameras and guards and whatever, but it still offers not only um, access to the building possibly, but access to your network depending on how you've set it up. So it's an interface you put out there, people interact with it. You kind of have assumptions about what you think they can or cannot do. Well, uh, if somebody is able to come in and kind of circumvent you slightly, uh, then uh, that breaks your assumptions and you can have a security gap. As you were talking about doing breakouts, I recently had a chance to showcase, uh, I guess, my breakout skills to some developers for like a Citrix application. Uh. And uh, I'll tell you, there's nothing like seeing the reaction on uh, a developer's face when you're like their whole security posture is based on not being able to break out of this application. Because once you break that paradigm, you know, game, it's game over. Mm -hmm. you know, all the security arrests are you not being able to get out. So I think it's a good, uh, like almost philosophical thought process on when you're designing systems, how should you think about it? Um, and then, you know, it, it's a little bit sad that I'm not surprised by this, but deploying some of these things with default credentials, um, it's scary, but I guess it, you know, it happens. I think the, the real big lesson is, again, anything that's public facing, whether it's me that means facing the internet or facing some hooligans in your in your lobby, like you've got to make sure that you've spent time to prevent them from tampering with it. Right. And and you need with any of that, I still think a layered approach on anything you do security wise is always key. So for for this example, you have a public facing kiosk in a building 
to gain public or to gain physical access to your, your company, it, if you instill a layered approach, obviously everything's going automation. So fine, automate the kiosks. Have some sort of physical human level of security, even if it's one person, just kind of in that lobby, kind of paying attention to everything, seeing if someone is taking literally 10 minutes at one of those kiosks trying to gain, gain admin privileges or, you know, messing around with the, the badge printing or any of those different aspects. You still need that layered approach to make sure that one's covering the other because of, you know, there's always going to be vulnerabilities. There's always going to be, you know, someone figuring out how to bypass something else. So you give them more obstacles, it's going to, it's going to help, help with security in general. Absolutely. So um, I think it's another reminder for people who are making software that has uh, a user base that is different from the people who are paying for it, that they may want to consider that these users uh, might be malicious. Hey, Matt. Uh, so I'd like to tell you a little bit about uh, the internet weather for this week and uh, some of the changes that we're seeing. And I actually uh, was able to discover something uh, new that I'd like to tell you about. So. Cool. Uh, let's get to it. So here is the usual. This is the top 10 most pro ports um, for the, uh, the day. And you could see that one of the ports here, um, it's, it's a port we're familiar with. That's 123 UDP. That's for the NTP protocol, the network time protocol. Yep. Um, it's jumped up a few places. Um, you know, we've seen it before. Um, I'd just like to show you some charts about what we're seeing on that port today in terms of probing activity. Um, and all these other ports, you know, these are ports that we've seen uh, all the time, there's no huge movement here. Um, so let's look a little bit more at the scan probes on port 123 UTP. This is just the last 30 days, and you could see, like, we see scanning activity all the time. Uh, but uh, you could see, and that's quite a bit of yeah. UTP scanning activity here. And there's these uh, three probably major spikes all of a sudden, and you might be wondering what's going on. So I went and I tried to look for all the different alarms. Um, that were being that we were triggering for this, and um, you know I couldn't narrow it down to something specific, but I did find a security research firm, a well-known one, mm -hmm. uh, kind of doing scanning, probably for um, they're probably looking for open NTP resolvers, so they have a, a little cloud of scanners, so they're using this uh, collection of scanners to basically scan the internet for okay. um, for this port. So they're probably looking to to find the open NTP resolvers so they can ask people to shut them down so they can't be used as a de um, denial of service amplification vector, right? Most likely. That or to sell them on their website. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> or access to the information on their website. So, um, uh, so that's, uh, those were oh, the top scanned. Wow. Uh, that, I see what you're getting at on this one. I'm, I'm, I'm dying to find out what that's about. Yes, that's a great one. So this is the most sources probing. So we use this for, uh, like we mentioned before, for our botnet tracking activity. And you see the one port that really just stands out is 9527. There was a new port in the internet weather that went up around 900 spots, which I haven't seen in a very long time. So this is what the scan probes looks like on this port. You could see that at a peak, and this is actually as of a few hours ago, uh, there's up to 18 million uh, 
scan probes. This doesn't mean how many devices, uh, but this is how many devices there are. Mm. So at the peak here, uh, about 13,000 devices per hour are scanning on this port. That means there's 13,000 devices out there suddenly all interested, and you could see it came out of nowhere. Right, you have uh, less than 1,000, I'd say less than even 100 based on what I'm seeing on that. Right. Sources interested in that until until like two days ago. Yep, exactly. So what happened? What is this all about? So I went and I took a look at all of the IP addresses that we're seeing. So this is a moment in time where there's about 11,000 different IP addresses. You could see how geographically dispersed there are, but there are some hotspots. I mean, you could see, you know, I guess that's pretty much the Middle East and Europe there, mm -hmm. and like Northern Africa, um, South America and the Asia region. Mm -hmm. um, so, and not a lot in the United States. Uh, not too many. Some hotspots, but not States. not as much as you could see. Yeah. Uh, yeah, and I wonder what that's about, right? So, uh, definitely some hotspots, and then some kind of barren areas where you would you might expect to see things there. Uh, we might even traditionally see things there. Uh, but we don't see them there now. So I went ahead and I looked at some of the sources and I looked at this port. And one thing that kind of stood out to me is all of these devices had 55, uh, 554 TCP open. And that's the RTSP protocol. So it's usually, yeah. I believe, used for like DVR type stuff or Cameras, like webcams yeah. and stuff like that. So this is not a great sample. It's not a statistical sample. This is a random sample of three that I picked from the list. Um, so I went to one of them. It gives you like this nice uh, login interface. So some of them were, that one is actually for like a router. Um, so there seems to be a combination of both DVR type things mm -hmm. and these small home office type routers and maybe Wi-Fi access points. Okay. Um, and then I started just Googling around 9,527 you know, 9, botnet. Let's see what comes up. And it looks like in 2017-ish, like two years ago, maybe a year and a half, a lot of people were talking about a botnet affecting IP cameras or like DVRs probably spreading okay. on this port. On this so uh, this is kind of consistent with what I'm seeing right now. Yeah, I'm seeing hidden Telnet debug service on port 9527. That's right. Interesting. So it might be that all of these devices are part of a botnet. That I'm, I'm confident in that. Uh, but the question is, what are they looking for on port uh, 9527? Mm -hmm. So I think uh, we're going to find out. They're probably looking for this hidden debug bridge and it kind of ties into what we we're talking about with Qbot before. Mm -hmm. If you remember with Qbot we said something old is maybe revamped a little and become something new. And it seems like this is again a very similar concept. Uh, so it does look like an IoT type of botnet uh, that's there and is doing the scanning and so it will be interesting to see uh, what kind of malware this is. The views expressed on AT&T ThreatTrack are those of the participants and do not necessarily represent the views of AT&T or any other person or entity.